get your seatbelts on. You're about to go for a ride. Mike Richardson joins me on the podcast today, and I am excited to share him with you because Mike is an energy-producing machine, and just listening to him creates this energetic force field in you if you allow it to get into you. So, hey, I'm excited you're here. Enjoy this episode with Mike. Mike Richardson, welcome to the Advisory Board Insider Podcast. I'm really glad you're here. Yeah, it's good to be here, Tom. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so let's start exactly with where you are right now. Tell me exactly where you are. I am in a wine district in Southern California called Temecula Valley. We're sort of in the triangulation between Los Angeles, San Diego, and Palm Springs. Lived here for 23 years, Tom, and we love it. Lovely. So are you in your, you're in your house, it sounds like. Is that where you are? I am. I'm in my home office. Uh, It was one of the things that really attracted us about this particular house. We're on the top of a hill with a beautiful view and I have a lovely uh, home office. So uh, I'm happy here. I love home offices. I'm in my home office within the studio part of my home office. So I love that. So uh, let's begin with your morning drink of choice, which seems like a strange place to start, but I'm always intrigued by the drink of choice. So what do you drink in the morning? Well, uh, in the morning, I would, you know, drink a cup of coffee or several. Um, I heard your previous podcast where you were talking about a particular brand of coffee in a particular kind of cup with a particular kind of, you know, additive in it. That's not me at all. Okay, I so take, you're you're willing to take whatever comes out of the coffee machine. Whatever my wife has going on. Now, though, you, you sort of slipped in a word there. You said in the morning, right? Yes. It's in the okay. afternoon. We're recording this in the afternoon. So typically, right. late morning, I switch to tea. Yes. But... I just told you that I live in a wine district. And so especially on a Friday, which it is today, Tom, it will not be too long before, hopefully, I am heading to a local winery. Uh, this is one of my favorites called Leoness. It's just a couple of miles away. Uh, there, are wi- there are 50 wineries around us here in Temecula Valley. We, we love it. And uh, uh, I hope to be doing that uh, in a couple of hours, Tom. <laughs> Lovely. All right. So uh, let's begin, though. If if your morning drink is coffee and you don't care what it's in, you don't care what kind it is, do you like put cream and sugar in there? Or is it just I have some milk, it? milk, milk, half and okay. half. Yeah, yeah. All right. So no particular brewing style. There's no special thing. Just as long as it's a you've got an input device to, to take it down the hatch. Yes. Yes, yes. So, it's a caffeine delivery system. That's what it is. Got it. All right. So take me back and tell me exactly how you started your day or what's like the average day look like for you. First thing oh, this morning, what's yeah. your day look like? I am one of those crazy individuals, Tom, who is a part of what is sometimes called the 4 a.m. club. Oh. I get up at 4 a.m. every day, including at the weekends, and I just love that early morning time between say four and and six or seven before the emails start to come in before I'm on video call after video call after video call. And so it's my way to get everything done that I want to get done creatively, 
from a from a project point of view before the day really starts, so that I can feel that I've gone into my day ahead of the curve. Mm. I'm not chasing my day, you know, behind the curve all day long. So that's that's what I do. I've done that for probably 20 years now, and it's clearly not for everybody. Many people, my wife included, think you are you are completely crazy. You are not normal. Right. You are what, not. What is what is wrong with you? But I love it. So so the coffee comes after you've been at it for a couple of hours? Or? Oh no 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 no. The coffee comes at four oh one. Got it. So I Got have it. A, okay. You know, you know, I have a one minute commute via the coffee machine. I feed and then the you cats, sit down at your desk and go to work. And I sit down at my desk and go to, go to work. So interesting. All right. So thank you for that. So I, I want to start maybe uh, having started there and understanding your morning routine and that you're you're sort of a a sort of um, uncomplicated coffee. Yeah, you're an uncomplicated coffee drinker. Um, so I'm going to go back. Uh, I need you to tell me a story as we start today about finding Hazelwood. So where is Hazelwood? And please start with that story. How have you? You have really done your research. I didn't mention that to you. So, you know, my 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 work, Tom, is all around the topic of agility. And when I which I've been doing now for 20 years, you know, since being independent and 20 years before that in my corporate life. And then I went independent into my portfolio life 20 years ago. And I, I settled on the concept of agility. And I, I really got hold of this idea of the nature of a journey. What is a journey? How does a journey unfold? And, and most people think about a journey sort of macroscopically. And, and of course, you need to do that. We're here. We want to be there. How do we get there? But I, uh, time after time after time after time, had, had, had realized, yes, and part of the secret is to think about a journey microscopically. How does it unfold? And then, like, when was it? Back in 2001, I think it was, the summer of 2001 or possibly 2000. So right at the start, my wife and I were living here in the USA and in Southern California, and we get invited back to a wedding in a little village in the center of England called Hazelwood. Hmm. And, you know, you get the invitation kind of nine months prior, and we start to talk about, flights, hotels, cars, kids, currencies, you name it, we talk about it. And we gradually put together what, what became a, a four-week vacation back in the UK, because we hadn't been back in a while, taking in this wedding in Hazelwood kind of halfway through. And I have all kinds of navigational stories that I could tell you, Tom. We just don't have time. Right. Because, right, right. because my wife will admit that she is navigationally challenged. And of course, back in 2000, 2001, this is, this is before GPS and SatNav and right. MapQuest and all that good stuff. But lo and behold, on this particular time, we arrive in the center of Hazelwood right on time, four o'clock on the Friday for the sort of rendezvous dinner before the wedding on the Saturday. We're right on time in the center of Hazelwood. And we arrive at the sort of crossroads, the central crossroads of this little English village. And my wife had like stuck a sticker on the map saying Hazelwood is here kind of thing. And I turn to her and I say, so where's the hotel then? And she says, give me a break. You know, I got us to the center of Hazelwood in the middle of nowhere. 
you know, <laughs> let's drive this way. And if we don't find it, let's come back and drive that way. And I'm sure we'll find the big resort hotel with a hunking great big golf course behind it, right? Whatever. So we drive this way, we don't find it. We drive that way, we don't find it. And um, there's a lady walking down the country lane, you know, high hedges. Mm -hmm. And I pull over and I say, excuse me, we're looking for the Hazelwood Castle, Hazelwood Manor Hotel, something like that. The invitation's in the trunk. Can you tell us where that is, please? And she says, mm, that doesn't ring a bell. So I said, well, okay, maybe I got the name wrong, but where's the big resort hotel around here? I'm sure that'll be it. She says, nope, there's nothing like that around here. Ouch. So I get the invitation out of the trunk, and, and it says the Hazelwood Castle Hotel Hazelwood, but there's no telephone number. That's all it says. And I, I say to my wife, um, you know when you stuck that sticker on the map? Yeah. <laughs> How did you determine this is the right Hazelwood? And bless her, we're still very happily married. Good, she good. said, well, I, I turned to the index of the map. I looked up Hazelwood. There was only one entry, and this is it. So I'm thinking, oh, my goodness me. How many Hazelwoods could there be in the UK one level of resolution below the resolution of this map? It could be anywhere. <laughs> Fortunately, I get, a, I get a signal on my cell phone. I get through to director inquiries. I say, look, all I know is Hazelwood Castle Hotel Hazelwood. She says, putting you through. So next thing you know, I'm talking to the receptionist of the Hazelwood Castle Hotel Hazelwood. And I say, look, I have a funny question for you. She said, oh, I said, by the way, I said, my name is Richardson. We're coming for a big family wedding this weekend. She said, oh, yes, yes. We're so excited to have you. So I knew I was talking to the right people. I said, well, I have a funny question for you. She said, sure. I said, could you just tell me the biggest city that you're close to? And she said, oh, yes, we're just five minutes east of Leeds, where we had been two hours before because we had driven south from Scotland, past Leeds, right, kept right going for Leeds. another 100, 120, 150 miles. So we turned the car around. We drove two hours back north. Uh, I promised her I wouldn't mention it, which I did not, Tom, for a I brought it up. I, I, am, I am completely sorry <laughs> I brought it up. And I may have tried to communicate under the radar with your wife about this story. But I didn't. So... So I think it's a it's a powerful story because I know that um, it has informed some because you started when I asked you the story you started with yeah. um, how yeah. that affects agility um, yeah. and it's about a journey somewhere so if if you permit me take me back to uh, year ten or eleven in secondary school <laughs> well, let's go back there where were you and what were you thinking. <laughs> Well, you, man, you've really done your research. You, you mean when I was 10 or 11 years old? You no, mean? when you were in year 10 or 11 in secondary school. Okay, so in England, right? In England, yep. that means I was Ninth be, or 10th grade, I, roughly, right? Yeah, which we don't, we, didn't, we don't call it that in right. England. But that means I would be probably, what, 17, 18 years old? Is that what you mean? Uh, 15, 16. Okay, yeah. So I would be in the final year of what we call secondary school. Yeah. And I was studying maths, physics, geography. Those, those were the main core classes that I was doing well at. Um, I, was a, I was what's called a prefect, right? These are those, those students who uh, 
help, you know, police, if you like, the school and make sure everybody's behaving themselves. I was, uh, I was uh, uh, a member of the Hovercraft Club. Hmm. So we built uh, uh, little uh, hovercraft, um, you know, that could carry one person. And we would take them away for the weekend with the metalworking teacher. It was him that did all this on his own time. We would take them away at the weekend and race them uh, at these organized, you know, racing uh, meets where you'd sort of show up in the grounds of a castle that's got rolling hills and a lake. And they would set up this fantastic course that's, you know, over ground and then over water. And uh, it was just a fabulous experience. So at that point in time, you're building hovercrafts on the weekend and you're going to school and you're being a prefect. What's your what's your vision of your future? What What's the picture oh, that you have of boy. where you're going? Well, that's interesting, you know, because, you know, like many people, I'm sure I came from very ordinary, a very ordinary background. My father was a policeman. My mother was a secretary in the local hospital. Very, very, very hardworking parents who, for whom, of course, uh, we were the first generation of kids that uh, had the possibility to go to university. And they promised, I was, I'm, I'm one of three boys, I'm the youngest. They promised us all, just, just you find your way to get to university and we will figure it out. And they did. Of course, back in those days, um, you know, there were grants and things available. Um, so, you know, I didn't really have a clear vision apart from the fact that I knew I wanted to go to university and I was increasingly getting clear that geology, geography, physics, and maths were my natural inclination. And, and as I did my research, you know, over the following two or three years, thinking about which universities and how I might, what subjects I might major in, I settled on geophysics, which is really the combination of geology, uh, physics and maths. And so right. um, I, I had a vision at that point that I would probably be uh, an engineer of some description and that I would probably, uh, uh, you know, pursue a technical career for most of my life. Uh, and, and I was beginning to think about you know, back in the 80s, of course, you know, uh, could I perhaps join the international staff of one of the big oil majors and and have an international career? So how do you go from that evolving <laughs> vision to standing on a shell oil, oil and gas rig out in the middle of the ocean somewhere? How do you how do you yeah. get, how do you get there? Yeah. So give me a sense of how you get to the shell, because it seems to me from researching a little bit about you that this uh, standing on an oil and gas rig out in the middle of the ocean has has deeply influenced how you think about agility. Yes. Oh my gosh, this is a wonderful conversation. So, so I went to I went to university. I managed to get there, and I started doing geophysics, and I started to do very well. I ended up, you know, being one of those overachievers that came top of his class kind of thing. It wasn't a big, it wasn't a big class, but I came top of the class and I, I, I got involved. Uh, I was very passionate about industry and, and I, I got involved with some industrial society kinds of things and I, I took on some sort of leadership roles in, in those, in those, you know, on campus societies and things. And, and I guess that just helped me you know, get noticed when I started applying to the oil majors, I got recruited by Shell to join their international staff. 
So mm. age, age 20, um, I went abroad and became an expatriate in Holland to do the uh, six-month uh, training camp, boot camp kind of experience, after which Shell had a fantastic uh, graduate training program where they then put you out in the field for two years. Uh, and in my case, I was in the upstream uh, part of the engineering process. And so I went out on drilling rigs uh, wow. for two years, week on, week off, uh, as one of the two uh, company personnel on site, uh, uh, the number one person is called the tool pusher. Uh, isn't that great language? The number two person is called the petroleum engineer. That's what I was. Okay. Uh, and I did, I did about 18 months onshore in Holland, uh, drilling for oil and gas, uh, all over the place. Uh, sometimes in the, uh, in the harbor, sometimes of Rotterdam, sometimes off the, off the, just off the beach in Scheveningen. Uh, sometimes down in, in some of the historical oil and gas areas like the Groningen gas field that used to be the biggest gas field in the world hmm. and the Schonebeck oil field. And then I did six months offshore, uh, helicopter out, helicopter back. And uh, whether you're onshore or offshore, uh, when you go out for your week on, you are on 24-7. You sleep if and when you can. Wow. And it was just a phenomenal experience. And um, I, I realized, you know, late 20 years later, 40 years later, I realized that that's where I first cut my teeth with being agile. I didn't use mm -hmm. the word back then. I didn't understand the concept fully back then. But I realized that's where I learned to be agile. And it served me well, you know, for 40 years thereafter. So in, in that, in that lesson, even though you didn't really understand it till later, the connection to agile, what was the, what was the thing you really got out of being on the rigs? Like being out for like what, you don't have to go deeply into it, but just yeah. what's the, what's the thing that that's brought you yeah. over these years from that platform experience? Yeah. So, you know, when you're out offshore, you're week on week off, um, there's, there's a, there's, there's two company personnel on site, there's contractor personnel on site. Uh, and then you've got, you know, probably 40, 50, 60 people in total people that are called roughnecks and roustabouts. You've all seen the movie, the movie right. deep water horizon. Yeah. You, you can all picture that in your mind. Um, and of course, you know, you're doing really heavy engineering. Uh, you're landing all kinds of, um, equipment and heavy duty stuff off of supply boats that are, you know, rising and falling in the, in the, in the ocean. Um, you're working 24 seven. It doesn't matter the time of day. It doesn't matter that by and large, it doesn't matter the weather. There would be times that I would be stood, you know, uh, on us on the back of a cement, um, uh, in, in cement truck kind of installation pumping cement like crazy down a whole bunch of pipes going down into the hole, counting this and counting that in the middle of the night with horizontal snow driving in my face. Really? And, wow. and, and you just know that, that at any moment, anything can change. The weather can change. Something can break, go wrong, and you just have to be ready. And, and, and what I, what I realized I learned, Tom, is the difference between organized chaos and disorganized chaos. Mm. And how do you stay 
in you know five percent, ten percent, fifteen percent in the green zone of organized chaos, not not the needle moving back over to five percent, ten percent, fifteen percent in the red zone of disorganized chaos, because that difference at the extreme can be the difference between life and death. Right. At the extreme, at the extreme, on your average day. No, it's not a difference between life and death. It's the difference between um, staying on schedule, staying on budget, staying safe, nobody getting hurt, uh, you know, losing a lo- losing a thumb or something. Uh, but on a on, on a bad day, it's the Gulf, you know, it's the uh, Deepwater Horizon, you know, Gulf oil spill BP scenario that can play out before your eyes if you're not careful and in that extreme environment, you typically don't get any second chances. Right. Things can go really bad, really big, really fast. And so you sort of have to become conditioned and acclimatized to how do I stay in the green zone of organized chaos? How do I have luck on my side, not working against me? And and who do I need to be as a leadership presence to 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 make sh- to assure that everything stays safe and on track and on time and on budget and and I just took I just took those experiences that real world experience I took into the business world and then I took it into the advisory world and it has just served me well ever since. Yeah, that's that's so cool, and and to me it seems like it's so profound because it's such a, at such a young early age, right? And you're you're out getting all of this this powerful perspective on the world, and you're you're, you're like a sponge in a way, and yet you're working your butt off, and uh, somewhere in there these lessons get lodged into the system. They just get lodged yeah, in there. Yeah, and I did. I developed deep, deep, deep reserves, of course, of, of personal resilience. Yeah. Um, of course, if, you know, there'd be times where, you know, I just come through my second night of no sleep. Uh, and of course, you know, if I had to go into a third night of no sleep, then that would be darn right dangerous. And so I would get relieved. They would fly out a relief petroleum engineer and give me, you know, 12 hours off or something, but typically not. Typically you're on for the seven days and mm. and, and you, you can handle it. But occasionally, you know, when something would happen, um, it, it's just getting dangerous. And so you would get relieved for, you know, a period of time to let you catch up. But you develop these deep reserves of resilience and you know that you have to be simultaneously working short-term, medium-term, long-term. Mm. And and strategically and tactically all at the same time. You've got to be, you know, whatever operation we're running right now and for the next two or three hours, it has to go right. It has to go well. And I need to be all over it. And I've got to be thinking about, okay, great. And so we should be done with this by about 6 a.m. That means I need the supply boat here by about 9 a.m., I can't have the supply boat here too early because there's no space to put right. anything until all, <laughs> until we've run all this stuff down hole. There's no space. Right. So I can't have the supply boat here too early. I can't have the supply boat here too late because otherwise I'm sitting around for six hours twiddling my thumbs. 
what's happening with the weather mm. and, and, and okay, let's suppose that that goes well tomorrow. The day after that, what's happening? The day after that, what's happening? And oh, three weeks from now, we think we're going to be done here and we're going to relocate the rig somewhere else and start again. What have I got to get lined up for all of that? So you're constantly working forwards from the present, backwards from the future, strategically and tactically all at the same time. And sometimes the smallest thing can bite you in the rear. Yeah. And all yeah. of a sudden, you know, there was once, Tom, there was once um, that I made a mistake in my estimation of how much particular material I had and how long it would last at the rate we were using it. And something was happening that we hadn't quite clued into and we were using more of it than we realized and we ran out. And it was a safety critical item. So I had to make the phone call in the middle of the night. There's always a duty person, you know, head office on duty. You wake them up, they're sleeping, right. but you wake them up, they take the call. And I had to explain that we'd run out and there was only one recommendation that I could make. And that was that we needed to shut the rig down for 12 hours and wait for the next supply boat. And oh. the, duty, the duty person agreed with me that there was no other option. It was the prudent thing to do. And I had to swallow really hard. And you can, you can, you can feel it in me right now. I had to swallow really hard because that really hurt my pride. Um, there were very few people that got through. I was on, I was on drilling rigs onshore and offshore for 300 days and nights. There are, there are, there are very few people that get through that like squeaky clean. Right. You know, something's going to happen. You got to swallow hard. You take it on the chin and you learn and grow and you realize, okay, you fell short there. Now this yeah. is a tough, this is a tough challenging job. You fell short there. What are you going to do to make sure that doesn't happen again? And that was the rule. That was what they said to us when they sent us out there. They said, look, within the rails of, of, of safety and, and, you know, outside of the rails of gross misconduct, forget about it. But inside the rails of safety and, and all of that good stuff, you can make any mistake once. Just don't make it twice. Right. Right. Yeah, that's great. So fast forward, you, you leave that, you get your MBA and then you get back into business and at a certain point in time, you become the CEO of an aerospace company, as I, I understand do. it. So yeah. uh, so all this experience on the rigs and then you, you get some more education and you do a little bit more work. And now you're sitting in front. I think it was called Bothorp is the name yeah. I read somewhere yeah. in, or yeah. Spirit. And it's yeah. a 500 million pound a year business. And what's what's similar to the rigs and what's different and, and right. how do you enter this role as a ceo now this is the first ceo role you've had yeah so i i so i did quit i quit shell after five years because i realized i wasn't really cut out for a technical career i loved being in the field for two years i was really cut out for that but then after that they bring you into the office and you become an analyst supporting mm. other people in the field and i i thought you know that's not really me so I decided to do the classic thing in the 80s and I quit and I went and funded myself through a two-year full-time MBA. And I discovered my passion for leadership mm. and my passion for industry. And a lot of my colleagues went off and, and did, you know, consulting with the big firms right. or, or got into private equity or venture capital. And I, I just, or the city of London, I, I don't want to do that. 
I want to go into leadership and British industry. And I looked at the automotive industry and I looked at a few others. And then I, I got offered a job um, by Bothorpe, uh, or no, actually by Doughty, first of all, um, uh, as a, uh, in the Midlands, in Wolverhampton, in, the, in what's called the black country of, of the UK, because it's so industrial. Uh, I got offered a job as a program manager uh, of an aerospace, a complex aerospace project. And then I became a product support manager, then a commercial manager, and then a sales and marketing VP. Mm. And then I, and I'm dealing with Boeing and Airbus and British Airways and all these people. And then I got headhunted away uh, to become a, a managing director, a CEO of a five million pound subsidiary of this 500 million pound conglomerate. Got in it. other words, in other words, they had a hundred companies <laughs> like the one they recruited me to run. Ah, I, became the man- I became the managing director of this oldie worldy uh, conglomerate called Bothell, ran one of their subsidiary companies. And then we merged it with another one across the street. So I was running a bigger one. And then um, what happened is um, a, the current CEO retired a new, a new CEO, contemporary CEO, who was British, but he'd spent a number of years in the States, came on board. He wanted to take the thing to the whole new level. So we rebranded ourselves from Bothorp to Spirant. And um, I got promoted to run the aerospace division. And um, uh, it, this is back now. I got, I got promoted uh, in 1997, I think it was, to run the aerospace division. And uh, I ended up uh, and I was, I had a, I had a, a, a combination of really high tech aerospace hardware and software companies and was serving Boeing, Airbus, British Airways, American, United, you know, wow. milita- militaries yeah. as well. So it was really sort of blue chip stuff. And um, we ended up making three acquisitions uh, here in North America, one in Canada and two in the USA. And that's what that's what brought the, the sort of center of gravity of my operation over here. I was coming here every other week at one point. And so in 1999, uh, one thing led to another is a longer story, but uh, we decided to relocate here and, and uh, came over here on a four-year work permit initially, at least. So what did, the, because, you know, we heard about your on the, you know, with Shell, you learned some really incredible things there. What were the big lessons from, running Spirant is how you say yeah. it, Spirant, uh, and, and then the evolution to the whole aerospace division. What were the big lessons you got from that time? Yeah, so so I, yeah, so I ran the aerospace division of Spirant, and um, Spirant was a public company. Uh, it, became a, it became a darling of the city in, in the 97, 98, 99, 2000 run-up. You know, Na- we were NASDAQ listed as well. And uh, our price earnings ratio was off the charts. Um, and um, there were some other big divisions and then the, the, the aerospace division. And so I lived in this, this vice, this pressure cooker between needing to be very entrepreneurial with high tech aerospace, hardware and software businesses and integrated systems that we put together. Um, we, we, back, we actually were in the business of crash protected recorders, black mm. boxes, 
uh, and and non-crash protected recorders called quick access recorders uh, that would record the whole flight and we would then put that through a, a system called FOQA, F-O-Q-A, Flight Operations Quality Assurance, really high-tech stuff. We also did air data computers, air data test equipment, uh, and we did um, uh, um, engine instrument displays and really, really high-tech stuff uh, that, you know, has to meet, you know, the right. top FAA, you know, and CAA right. certification requirements. So I'm doing all this entrepreneurial stuff at the same time as having to provide the corporation, you know, a predictable share price sensitive performance. Right. And of course, those two things are almost the opposites of each other. Yes. Entrepreneurship yeah. is not predictable. Right. And yet I had to be predictable. So that was a really interesting um, sort of place that I had to live. And what I learned about that was it's all about innovation. It's all about how do you facilitate the flow of innovation? How do you have the right culture for innovation? How do you have the right productivity for innovation? How do you mobilize a team for innovation? How do you have the agility for innovation? Because you know one thing about innovation. It will not be right first time. Right. You will fail. Um, and and it's all about, yeah, but how can you iterate and iterate and iterate and eventually succeed? And so that's really what I learned. That's that's so cool. And, and it, it's really cool to watch, you know, a story evolve from, you know, uh, building a hovercraft to standing <laughs> on a shell oil platform, dealing with just the intensity of that, moving through and becoming a, a, a CEO or managing director. And then especially in a publicly traded company with innovation plus accountability and the intensity of that. So uh, eventually you leave that and you're in the life you're in now, which, which you call a portfolio business. And you're helping other people to be agile, to to respond to this this history of yours. So uh, give me a sense of the common thread because agility is part of that. Um, but there's this common thread because you you consult, you coach, you advise, you uh, you lead, you facilitate, you do all that. You've written books. Um, give me a sense of the thread that that has yeah. come through this whole journey to get you to where you are now. Well, that's the key word, journey. Uh, that that you know, when, we, when you were asking me earlier about the the Hazelwood story, the, or what I what I came to call the wrong Hazelwood story, because we ended up in the wrong Hazelwood, I, I use that that story now to reveal to people that you can get ninety nine out of a hundred things right. You can get nine hundred and ninety nine out of a thousand things right. Oftentimes, it's the one question, the one thought, the one decision, the one action that you didn't do that derailed the whole thing. And, and because I was in the field of uh, crash recorders, you know, I, I was very intimate with aircraft accidents and, 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 and all of that. And so I tell stories of aircraft accidents and how, uh, unfortunately, you know, even today, you know, uh, a, a very large percentage of aircraft accidents are pilot error, mm. are, are crew, crew error because we weren't thinking about something the right way. We weren't questioning it the right way. We weren't deciding the right way. We weren't acting the right way. And, and what I realized as I, you know, that the whole field of agility has just been an exploding universe over the last 20 years. It's just yeah. like bewildering. Everybody now 
is in the agility business, everybody. And so I was sort of pondering, you know, where my instincts took me in terms of how to sort of cut through the complexity and the hype. And I ended up um, framing up this idea that a journey unfolds in how you link and accumulate individual thoughts, questions, decisions, and actions macroscopically and microscopically. And, and if there are any missing, uh, you can get yourself into the wrong Hazelwood or an aircraft accident or a BP Gulf oil spill really fast, really big with few second chances. And I started to frame that up and, and I, I distilled it down to what I call conversation flow to cash flow, C to C, conversation flow to cash flow. And, and that sort of accumulation of how you, you link and accumulate thoughts, questions, decisions, and actions. That's what I mean by conversation flow. And, right. and, and people will say, what you mean? We just sit around and talk. And, I've, and I say, well, no, of course not. Notice that actions are a part of conversation. Actions are a conversation with reality. Mm. If only you will bring reality into the conversation by taking real actions. Agility is a contact sport. You have to contact reality because until you do, you've learned nothing, nothing. It's all theory. Right. right. You think you've learned something, but the reality is until you contact reality, you put a real thing in front of real people who really use it and give you real feedback about what they really like and what they really don't like. Until that point, relatively speaking, you know nothing. Mm. So I frame an action as a part of the conversation. And, and what I like to say to people is, the trajectory of your cash flow follows the trajectory of your conversation flow. Uh, cash is not king anymore. Conversation flow is king, and cash flow is a way of keeping score. And, mm. and so, so conversation flow became, and, and C to C, conversation flow to cash flow, became the kind of organizing principle of everything that I do, Tom whether I'm facilitating or coaching or speaking or writing or I'm running peer forums or I'm involved with advisory boards as, a, as an advisory board member or an advisory board chair, uh, whether I am facilitating a strategic retreat, working with the CEO and the C-suite and the, and the team, what I'm always doing in some way, shape or form is helping them drive an inflection point in the trajectory of their conversation flow so that their their cash flow can also inflect and follow it yeah that's that's so that's really a such a an interesting way of looking at it so um conversation flow given the the theme of this uh this podcast is advisory boards conversation flow to me is a a perfect connection point to that right um and so give me a sense of your experience leveraging you know that kind of conversation flow that helps to support um the chaotic world we're living in and the ability to be agile give me a sense of how advisory boards have really been a part of shaping you know, the, the, the role you play, the facilitation you do, the leadership you give, how has, a, how, how have advisory boards been a part of that? Yeah, exactly. So, you know, the key is, um, how do you have a decent radar scope, uh, for your business, for your enterprise, for your organization? And, um, you know, the smallest, weakest signal out there on the fringe of your radar scope 
can be a freight train coming in your direction, and it's going to be here bigger, faster, sooner than your worst nightmare if you're not careful. So how do you, as a business, as a leader, as an enterprise, as an organization, have enough conversation flow about your radar scope? Not just the stuff that's front and center, it's right in front of you. It's clear and obvious, right? It's a clear and present danger or a clear and present opportunity. But the unclear and unpresent weak signals on the fringe, because mm. some of those are going to be here before you expect, or at least that that that's the only safe assumption. Now the challenge is that that can be overwhelming. Right. Well, how do I know what to talk about, and what not to talk about? Well, that's part of the process, right? And that's why having external eyes and ears and external input. Uh, is so crucial. And whether it is a an advisory board for your business or your enterprise or your organization, or it's a peer advisory board, which is a diverse collection of CEOs and executives from diverse industries and diverse businesses, all being great radar scopes for each other, um, it's all about improving your radar scope so mm. that you can be more confident that with a little bit of luck, you can be future-proofed. I mean, really, that's what we're talking about, Tom. We're really talking about how well future-proofed is your business, is your leadership, and frankly, therefore, is your career. How well future-proofed in it is it? And how well are you diversifying the input that you are getting to your radar scope? so that you can sleep easy, that with a bit of luck, you're going to be okay. In fact, you're not only going to be okay, you're not only going to survive, you're going to thrive because you've got the agility to thrive in a disruptive future, not the fragility to be at threat by a disruptive future. And so that's why I became so passionate about peer advisory boards and all the yep. work I've done there and why I became so passionate about advisory boards as distinct from governance boards. I've been on both. Um, yeah. uh, and, and we, you know, for me, an advisory board is a more agile uh, 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 thing that can really help improve your radar scope. So uh, you, you've talked about both of those and you're involved in both of those. Um, is there, uh, is it a, uh, a a peer versus formal advisory group, or is it a combination of both? What what's your how how have you seen that? Because you've been deeply involved in both sides. Yeah, I like to talk about an advisory advantage, mm. uh, which can lead into an agility advantage. And what I mean by an advisory advantage is, are you getting the right combinations of external, experienced, diverse advisory input uh, in some combination often, perhaps. Uh, you have an advisory board for your business, your enterprise, your organization as a CEO, and perhaps you are also a member right. of an external peer advisory board uh, to, to complement that process. And so there isn't a one-size-fits-all answer, of course, but the question is the same. How well are you leveraging, developing, evolving an advisory advantage 
mm. in some way, shape or form through some combination of those approaches. Of course, you might also be using external consultants and coaches right. and facilitators and all that kind of stuff. But what I'm seeing, Tom, is as the pace of turbulent, disruptive, volatile, ambiguous change only accelerates. And by the way, most pundits that I read will talk in some way, shape or form about the exponential age. And the fact that yeah. if you think this is fast paced change, you haven't seen anything yet. <laughs> the convergence of, of artificial intelligence and nanotechnology and, and, you know, and everything else, 3D printing and you name it, all of that is just going to converge to an explosive exponential phase of growth that we haven't, you can hardly comprehend and imagine. So if you think this is fast, everybody, and overwhelming, right. watch out. Yeah. And in my experience, on. yeah, buckle up. Yeah, in my experience, life is about to change. Yeah. You, in that kind of environment, there's absolutely no way you can have all of the in-house brain power and horsepower and diversity of experience and perspective and 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 reach just it's just not possible so you have to figure out how are you going to have more advisory input to make up the difference and in many ways it's um it's it's sort of similar to the idea that you know, I had a corporate career, now I've got a portfolio career. There's an increasing amount of, of data that says more and more and more of the population will have a portfolio career. There are, there are some, some data out there that say, I think by 2030 or something, 50% yeah. of the workforce will, will be portfolio, not corporate. Right. And so we're seeing it in the workforce already. We're seeing it through the great resignation and, and the great reshuffle and all of this. We're seeing the rise of freelancers and gig workers and, and independent consultants and all of this. Um, and so we're having to get used to the idea that I can no longer talk about my employees. Right. Because, because an increasing proportion of your human capital are not employees. And I just see the same thing happening uh, at the level of, of your advisory advantage, an increasing proportion of it necessarily, because you need the diversity, you need the external perspective, is going to have to come from external sources. Yeah, yeah, that's really good. So uh, assume a CEO is listening and uh, she's interested in implementing an advisory board um, or an advisory advantage, as you call yep. it. What yep. advice would you give her to prepare for uh, to build that external, independent eyes and ears to be prepared for what's coming to sort of have radar scope yeah. to future proof herself? What's yeah. what's she going to need? What, how should she think about this going forward? Yeah, it's a great it's a great question, and uh, I have several thoughts on that, Tom. You know, I think here in the USA in particular, uh, what I like to say is that the advisory board sector is simultaneously mature and immature all at the same time. It's mature in that advisory boards are quite common. They're quite prevalent, actually. Um, the, the, you, know, these, you see them all over the place in different, different uh, shapes and sizes. 
uh, often, you know, private equity firms, venture capital firms, it's one of the first things they will do is, is put an advisory board together. Um, and when I mean immature, what I mean is, and I've, you know, I've had a fair amount of experience with this, is, yeah, often not in the right way for the right reasons and well run. And, um, and uh, what I love about, uh, you know, the advisory board center in particular is the research-based best practice framework of um, doing advisory boards in the right way that's research-based. Because think about it like this, Tom. If we go back to the idea of conversation flow to cash flow, what I like to talk about with people is, well, how do I assess my conversation flow? And what I talk about is QQC, quantity, quality, and cadence. And um, if you go down the hallway to your CFO, everybody, and you ask your CFO, hey, what do we want of our cash flow? Let's start there. What do we want of our cash flow? Uh, in some way, shape, or form, what your CFO is going to tell you is QQC, quantity, quality, right. and cadence. That's what I want of my cash flow. Well, guess what? That's what you need of your conversation flow so that you get that in your cash flow. So what's the quantity, quality, and cadence of the conversation flow that your advisory board is driving? And if you're not careful, if you have, a, if you have, a, if you have a, an advisory board that's immature in terms of its best practice research-based framework, you're talking about a lot of stuff. Absolutely, you're talking about a lot of stuff. But the QQC of your conversation flow, the quantity, quality, and cadence isn't where it needs to be. You're over-talking about some things and under-talking about others. The quality isn't where it needs to be in terms of getting the diversity of input that you need. Some people are dominating. Some people are passive. And the cadence, the frequency, the rhythm, the closed-loop nature, the follow-up, the, the continuity of that conversation flow isn't where it needs to be. And I think what, what the Advisory Board Center has done in particular is it's brought a research-based best practice architecture and tool set to the table of how do I establish a mature advisory board that can drive the radar scope of conversation flow with the right quantity, quality, and cadence to secure the future of my enterprise. I, nothing's guaranteed, right. but you can... You can sleep a bit more easily. You can have a bit more confidence. You can feel more composed in the face of craziness that you're doing well in future-proofing yourselves. That's, that's the difference for me. So uh, back to our fictional CEO and what, what mistakes could she make that you've seen? So it's very easy to you know, think about, I need an advisory board. I need this this group of people around me, but it's very easy to get kind of stuck. You talked about the advisory board center's capabilities around um, a sort of best practice and uh, yeah. and structures and things like that. Yeah. But um, it's very easy for a, a, a CEO who's trying to get involved in this to kind of screw up. So what, yeah. what have you skiing? As That's the, a great question. Uh, so so th three things not to do off the top of my head here. And, okay. uh, uh, and I'll say, number one, first and foremost, don't have an advisory board of family and friends. Right. Do not do it. 
that is an immature advisory board. You will not get the QQC, quantity and quality of cadence and conversation flow that you need, number one. Number two, do not have a whole bunch of left-brainers and no right-brainers. Don't have a whole bunch of right-brainers and no left-brainers. Do mm. not stack the room with lawyers and accountants. Right. That's You're going to get a whole bunch of left-brain thinking and and not enough right brain thinking don't stack the room with your creatives and and marketing and pr people because you'll get a whole bunch of right brain thinking and not enough left brain thinking make sure that you have a whole brained advisory board mm. that you have a good combination of all of it because that's where the quality of your conversation flow will come from and then uh, make sure number 3 uh, that your your conversation flow is is simultaneously tactical and strategic, uh, long-term and short-term oriented. It's very easy for your conversation flow to just collapse to being short-term tactical. Yes. Um, and, of course, that is where the C team can easily be stuck in its day-to-day -day existence anyway. Now, right. you know, there, obviously there are techniques to, to uh, agile techniques to prevent that, but but that is often where they are already. And so make sure that your advisory board isn't just worsening that. Your advisory board needs to be tackling longer term, more strategic things. But of course, um, th those are the more ambiguous things. Yeah. Those are the harder things to grapple with. And and it's almost like you're reaching up into the ether, trying to trying to wrestle with a cloud. It's, it's like I can't get my head around this. I can't get my arms around this. Well, that's 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 the process. You've got to start grappling with some of these things that are going to change your future, uh, probably bigger, faster, sooner than you think. Well, and that's that's to me the place where you just hit that that your radar scope is engaged more, especially if you've engaged independence on your advisory board. If it's all insiders, they're they're generally stuck in the same scope you are. It's the the prevalence of whole brained outsiders, independent, unique perspective, fit for purpose is is often a way of describing it they're fit for the purpose of this board that they're sitting yeah on. with no hidden agenda apart right. from to give you their very best best input and um you know exactly it's it's all about how do you be as future-proofed as you as you possibly can be uh and how do you you know be out in front you know when 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 i talk when i i love to study Agile leaders in 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 the real world. Yep. I, I call them I call them everyday agile leaders in the real world. They are experiencing the agility challenge in the real world every day. Fighter pilots, special forces, commercial pilots, professional sports people, petroleum engineers working on offshore drilling rigs. And you know, when you talk to a commercial pilot, they will always tell you, "Be out in front of the plane. Mm. You can, you've got to be making sure." that you're always keeping your options open. You know, you, in, in a commercial airliner, you never, ever, ever want to run out of options. Right. <laughs> that right. doesn't end well. So you've got to be out ahead of the plane. How do you get out ahead of the plane, everybody, in running your business? And um, and really tapping into that, that uh, external perspective 
because one of the things that we say, everybody in the field of agile, is that the future's already here. Mm. It's just not evenly distributed. <laughs> it's out there on the fringe. Right. Right. The future's already here. It's out there on the fringe, not in your sector, not in your industry, but in some other sector, in some other industry. The future's already here and it's coming to you very soon or could be coming to you very soon. So what you have to do is you have to go future hunting. Mm. And to, to go future hunting, you have to go to the fringe. Right. And or bring the fringe to you. you. Mm. And when you're, when you're bringing external advisors and, and, and chair people of advisory boards, when you're bringing them into your advisory board, that's what you're br doing. You're bringing the fringe to you mm. so that you can breathe different air and you can wear different lenses and you can gain a new perspective uh, that's going to challenge you. Yes. And, and, you know, you or some of your people, you know, what's that saying? Never say never. Oh, that'll never, that'll never happen. That'll never come to our industry, our business. Really? Okay. You know, that's a very, very, very risky thing. And, and when, a, when, a, um, when an advisory board is well chaired for that QQC, quantity, quality, and cadence, then a good, a good advisory board chair or a good peer advisory board leader will make sure that the conversation, the, the, the playing field of the conversation flow remains level. Yeah. And that... There's no dark corner of conversation flow that we're not having. Uh, a good chair will make sure that no, 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 we shine a light in there and we see, you know, the elephant in the corner of the room that nobody wants to talk about. And we just at the very least, you know, make sure that we acknowledge it and, and we're not going to ignore it yeah. uh, because it'll come and bite us in the rear if we're not careful. And we just figure out how to make sure that in some way, shape or form, we tackle that over time. You know, one, one bite at a time, we're going to tackle that. Because if we don't, it leaves your future at risk. Oh, well, I, I, I feel like that's a great place to, to wrap because, <laughs> Mike, you are like, I, I just love the, the uh, just the, the way you phrase things, the way you bring a, a logical a set of words to something that's bigger, but I, I love I love how you've left that, and uh, I feel like everything we've talked about has been so powerful uh, for anyone who's considering boards. But also, I, I think it's so important to understand the history that leads you to be able to manage and run and facilitate awesome. and do the work you awesome. do. So, um, let awesome. me ask you a couple of rapid fire questions. These are unrelated to advisory boards, your life, your history, but they're just of interest <laughs> as we finish. Uh, <laughs> Uh, Just boxes, bo boxes, boxes. <laughs> All right. Number one, uh, Mac or PC? PC, PC. Okay. My wife, my wife is a Mac person. She drives me crazy. She's often, she's always asking me, how do I do this? I have no idea. <laughs> Got it. Uh, current book on your night table. Not that you ever sleep, but current book that, that sort of sits by, you know, sort of your relaxed place. Uh, that's a good one, actually. I actually don't read physical books much anymore okay i have a because i get up at 4 a.m right i have a four i have a 4 p.m routine which is like every day that it's not raining 
I go for a walk at 4 p.m. and I listen to audio books. And um, uh, I'm, I'm just a fan of, you know, audio books about the future. And the, yeah, the one, one that I've read recently was called, is indeed called The Exponential Age. Exponential Age. Okay. Would you recommend others listen to it? Yes, it? very much indeed. Great book. Okay. Great book. Okay. What's the favorite web or phone app that gives you the best return on investment right now? <laughs> Oh, the English Premier League app on my phone. Wow. Uh, I, 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 I am, I am a, a, of course, a, a, a soccer slash English football fan. Uh, the Premier League in particular and the Champions League and the World Cup and the Euros. Congratulations, Argentina. Um, I just love all that stuff. And so I am constantly keeping my my keeping track of the scores and the, and the fixtures and the, the league table and everything. Beautiful. <laughs> Final question. What was the first question you asked chat GPT? Oh. <laughs> oh, you know, I had, I actually haven't, I actually haven't yet. You haven't um, asked. Chat okay. Well, that's, I have not. That... I've, I have, I've seen lots of other people playing with it. I love to, I love to write. I love to create. I love to express um, so I haven't actually experimented with it yet. I'm sure I will before too long. And I heard last night, I think, while I was on my walk, I, I was listening to a podcast and I heard last night, I think in one of the adverts or something, that uh, Microsoft Office will soon, in Word yes. and PowerPoint, and uh, will soon have, I guess, some chat GPT competing right. kinds of uh, utility. Yeah. Built right in. <laughs> Mike, you are a uh, a gem, a genius, and a uh, and literally a uh, a ball of energy and fire, like uh, like few I know. And so, uh, how do people find you if they're looking for you? Where where do where yeah. do we find you? Yeah, just go to MikeRichardson.live, everybody. MikeRichardson.live, and you'll find me there, and you'll find everything that I do. Uh, I I do a lot of work with advisory boards, of course. I do a lot of work with peer advisory boards. Yep. I do a lot of work in the space of agility. I love to speak and facilitate and coach and and write. And uh, yeah, MikeRichardson.live, everybody. And we'll make sure in the show notes that everything's linked to you and all your different uh, places. But Mike, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> is you it are, time? Is it is it time it's, yet? It's, I it's believe nearly it's time. time for you to have your uh, Temecula <laughs> wine. So uh, thank you for being aboard and uh, really appreciate you joining us today. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs>